Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Gary. Hello, mate. Glastonbury got cancelled this week. Yep. Um, pretty miserable. But having said that, Glastonbury is by far the earliest of all the festivals, isn't it? It is. But I really wanted to see McCartney. Yeah. No, there Didn't is it? that. So, uh, very much looking forward to this this week. My dear old mate, Johnny, who I've worked with extensively and had numerous scrapes and adventures with. Uh, oh, well, this is, I might as well just step back and watch. Well, no. You, you talk you, about you, war wounds. <laughs> but I bet, I bet I met him before you met him. I bet you did. You always did. I met him in 1981. Yes, you did. That was, uh, was that Red Wedge? No, no, that was 85, Red Wedge. 1981, he wasn't even no. in a band, I don't think. Well, he certainly wasn't in the band that he ended up being famous for. I met him in a club called Berlin, but I'm going to ask him about that in Manchester. Wow, you see, you see you've always got something, Gal. You've always got something, haven't you? <laughs> I know, I know. I've been around the block. But I am excited too. I mean, he's one of the greatest guitarists on the planet, isn't he? I mean, what he does with a guitar is exceptional and the stylings and the and the unique qualities that he gives to the recording of those of that instrument is, yeah, you know, it's up he's there with a- the greats. He's an orchestra, because I'll never forget the first time I was in a studio with him, which was with Brian Ferry. And the second he started playing, I remember just dropping my paper, running over, looking at his hands and just going, where's the other guy? <laughs> but but I, how many times have I heard you play and said to the person arranging the session, where's the other guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, Pino's on his way. Don't worry. <laughs> well, hopefully Johnny Marr's on his way. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. (laughs) It's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey, fellas. Wow, you're looking really slick. I, I li- I'm liking the top as well. It's 
Got a James Bond Johnny, got to make an effort. <laughs> <laughs> but Johnny, before we get started and get into the chronology and everything, I want to use this opportunity to tell the story that so fundamentally involves you of yeah. Betsy. Because anyone who knows anything about me as a bass player knows about Betsy, right? Which is my beloved and favorite and the best bass guitar of all time. Which I own for the simple reason of when Johnny and I met in like, what was it, 85, I think. And we ran around London having this whirlwind bromance, just playing on loads of records. And yeah. I was very much an 80s boy. So I had all these modern bits. I had a Steinberger, I had a Status. And I could tell it rubbed on Johnny a bit because you, <laughs> you were picking guitars left, right and center. And I could tell it irked you somewhat. And you kept kind of hinting, guy, you know, maybe Fender. And I hadn't thought, really thought about it. And you then introduced me to Alan Rogan, the legendary guitar tech, who was looking after you at the time. And Pete Townsend, of course. Well, the old joke is, what have Pete Townsend, Keith Richards and Eric Clapton got in common? They've all worked for Alan Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, he was busy selling John Entwistle's bass collection at the time, because John was skint. And he came up with this 1964 Burgundy Miss Jazz bass for me to try. And um, it was the first Fender I'd ever come across where I opened the case and it was literally just going, Daddy, Daddy, don't go, Daddy. And I fell in love with it. So got it. And of course, Johnny, you were very pleased. I then used it on everything we were working on. In fact, you can now buy a Betsy. But the name... This is what it's about. This is, this is you just sponsoring it, getting your ad over it. Right? <laughs> no, because the name is... At some point in the mid-90s, I went up to Manchester. I was doing something else. And I went to see Johnny. And Johnny, you've been on a guitar buying spree. Right, I thought you just got into SGs at the time. And you say, God, I've got a great so look, this is Betsy, she's amazing. Right? And you play this guitar, then you put it down, pick up another, go, oh, this one's great, this is Betsy, it's amazing. And he kept picking up the guitars, going, this is Betsy, it's great. I was going, whoa, 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 Johnny, what's going on, mate? You saw it on King of the Hill? Yeah, there's an episode about his uh, Gretsch arch top guitar, Hank Hill. It's genius, it's absolutely genius. And so I thought the whole idea of naming your guitar after a woman at that point, I was being ironic, obviously. I thought it was hilarious. You know, it's that fine line of being ironic and also being really into guitar culture. So I thought it was hilarious that Hank Hill had this guitar. It was a perfect name. So I decided that I was going to call all my guitars Betsy, every single one of them. <laughs> years, years later, some tech who worked for me that ended up working for Noel, Noel Gallagher, and whoever the tech was, he must not have had a sense of irony. And he says to Noel, I heard Noel just go, Johnny Marr calls his guitar Betsy. What a dweeb. <laughs> Probably not a word he used. <laughs> I thought, you know what? I'm not even going to explain it, Noel. There's a long story. It's a backstory. You have to talk to Guy Pratt about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shit, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. That guy was just like, this is so funny. That's the name of my bass. You said the point was that you have to call all your guitars Betsy. That's right. Yeah. So none of them feel left out. And so I tried that. I tried calling all my guitars Betsy. But this weird thing happened. Whenever I picked up that bass, it's like, yeah, but you're Betsy, aren't you? Really? Oh, 100%. And she, became, and she became Betsy. And then um, and I said, oh, you remember my old Steinberger, the one I loved before? And you went, oh, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> you don't name your guitars, do you, Johnny? No, no, I don't. Well... I, I don't, no, I don't. But what's the guitar in your collection, though, that is the one that you would never, ever give away? It was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, well, what, weirdly, the, the, probably the guitar that's become most famous, really, it's actually a Smith's Red 355, because... Oh, yeah, yeah. You know how it goes? It, a picture just becomes really 
you know, well-known. It wasn't the guitar that I've used as much as most others, but it's just because, you know, it's that word iconic, isn't it, that I try yeah. to avoid using. It's become that. So it would, be, it would be that one. But I have, probably like yourself, you know, I have four or five that I just keep going to. I have a kind of an arsenal of guitars. And, you know, yeah. come on, fess up. We've all done this thing. I don't need any more. All right. <laughs> I'm going to sell some. That's it. You know, this is gross. And then, you know, you get into doing another album or another phase or whatever. And you're like, ah, okay. <laughs> you know, I saw a clip of like the Easy Beats or something. I'm like, yeah, but the back of this one is different. <laughs> you know, but you know, you, you always write. I, I mean, I find if you, you buy a new guitar. Well, this is me now talking to my wife, right? But I'll pass this on. But when you buy a new guitar, you will write another song and it will be one of the good songs. Because you're inspired when it sits in your hands. So was my MO, Gary, because I've been working class. Look, I do own a lot of guitars because the Smiths got, we took off in 82 when I was like 18 and we, and we did, you know, we were doing well. And, you know, I started making money. So I wanted to spend money on pot guitars and clothes. And uh, which, you know, I did very well. And um, uh, <laughs> I lived in Earl's Court uh, and there was a, uh, it's called Earl's Court Guitar Center. But anyway, at that point, guitars were just still called old guitars. They weren't even called vintage guitars. Yeah. And particularly 81, 82, 83, you know, I was sort of picking up these old, old guitars, you know, and uh, loved them. So it was kind of a lot cheaper then. And like yourself, I, I kind of disciplined myself or excused myself to go, well, if I write a song up with this, I did, if it, you know, maybe it'll pay for it. Uh, so yeah. I try to keep that up. And then, you know, as you get older, if you get some success, you get extremely blessed with being able to get deals. And, you know, I have a thing where, because, I, you know, I've given a couple of guitars to friends. You know, Bernard Butler's got a Smith's guitar and Noel famously has got a couple of Smith's guitars. And that had been a big deal. And um, to be honest, I've been asked over the years, well, do you ever get given guitars? And I was like, no, that's a point, right? <laughs> this went on for about 25 years. I've like, got a ukulele I might send you after this. Well, uh, yeah, Johnny, it's because um, people don't give guitars to people they think are better than them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about my... I haven't the end of it yet. I don't know what that says about my solo career because I've been given a few guitars, so maybe my career's going like that. But um, now Rogers gave me one of his guitars, which is amazing. And wow. Chrissy's very, very, she's a generous person all around. You know, Chrissy gave me a, Chrissy Iron gave me an amazing telly. But more recently, as a gift, Brian Ferry gave me the Hagstrom on the cover of For Your Pleasure. No! What? No. What? Okay. Interview ends here. Interview what, ends here. That's it. What was the reason for giving you that spectacular thing? Um, was it a birthday or was it a thank you for the yeah, lovemaking? Well, I've been recording a lot with him over the last few years, which... Frankly, I would do, you know, for free. I, will, I will do for free because he's a friend and I really enjoyed working with him. On the subject of guitars, you know, Brian has, you know, he, he collects guitarists. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look at the list of guitar players on an album, it's yeah. extraordinary, isn't Sorry, it? Sorry, on one song, mate. <laughs> one solo i once so chester Kamen and i had the old tapes from boys and girls which we were reusing something i went through and there's actually a guitar solo which goes david gilmore edited into mark knopfler <laughs> into neil hubbard into chester then back into david that's one solo yeah <laughs>
yeah, yeah. But the thing is, though, even though there are lots of guitar players on it, you can always spot you. I mean, you've got such a distinctive yeah. sound and style. Just one last thing on the Brian thing, because Johnny, because you have your signature guitar now, right? Don't you? Because oh, I've yeah, got to say, there was there was a song on Avonmore, "Soldier of Fortune," I believe, which yeah. you co-wrote. Yeah. Which it, I've got to say is literally the best clean rock guitar sound I've heard since Hendrix. Oh, it is it, literally the best. Well, when I was starting out, you know, the, the clean guitar sound was was somewhat of a kind of a forgotten thing, you know, in the in the late seventies. I mean, we all know, and um, yeah, I've been working on it a long time. It's kind of a, a you know, I should be good at it by now, I guess. But yeah, no, I mean, I think because I certainly was into trying to find that very clean sound as well in the in the sort of like early 80s. But that came so much from Niall and what he was doing. And But I would say that your sound was also coming out of people like Richard Lloyd for television yeah. and uh, John McG No, John McGill was more your style rather than sound because yeah. he was a sort of dirty SG sort of player, wasn't he? But, no, that, that's right. No, it's interesting that... Speaking of people, this you know, we're all around the same age. That I've become in my old age very proud of the of the generation of musicians, mostly that I, I come out of. I'm proud of the the movement and time I came out of or started out. So early eighties. I'm proud of it politically, and I'm proud of it musically. When I started putting these solo records out, I found that I was being entirely well interviewed, nearly mostly about myself. You know, it wasn't what Modest Mouse are doing or how I fit with the Ver or Electronic or what I'm doing with Pet Shop Boys. I was doing solo records. I hadn't really anticipated it was about me mostly. Now, obviously, so much is about the Smiths and always will be fine. But um, I came out of a time with certain specific values. So, you, you know, there's lots to say about that in terms of ideology. But guitar-wise, the subject we're on, one of the reasons why Nile Rodgers was important and some other people like him it was a break away from what 70s rock guitar had become we all know that so what happened with punk as amazing as it was from a guitar player's point of view i felt like it was i've said this before but rather than it be the letter a in a new lexicon i felt it was the letter z or z in an old lexicon because you wow. still have you had the power chords and i felt what yeah. came after that particularly as i was young i was uh, just left school in 1980. That was the brand new world. That was amazing. This whole right where we're going to go after that. It was all really a reaction to what you couldn't be. You, blues rock was out. We knew because of punk that long indulgent solos was out. We knew that as a guitar player now, it's very nuanced, but the kind of Chuck Berry isms or the Johnny Thunderisms, which bless him, I love, but that Steve Jones was doing very well. All yeah, of that, he was. My generation of people hanging out at the Hacienda, it was all out. So you left with really a very clean sound and a very feminine, very unmacho kind of sound. And um, there's only so much you can do with that. There was bass, drums and guitars. So if I wanted to make a big racket or had this harmonic thing going in the background, I either had to play with a very funky style, like, you know, like you started out doing on the early singles and like maybe Orange Juice, Edwin was doing some of those postcard bands. Mm -hmm. Or I had to make a big noise with arpeggios. And because I'm, very drawn to melody anyway. I opted for that. And a few years earlier, I copped a lot of Bert Janch and Richard Thompson, and I knew the folky thing. But then there's this George Harrison and Roger McGuinn, and obviously they had set that yeah. style of arpeggio up a while before. But I can still see, you know, that 
American punk East Coast sound coming out of what you were doing as well. Absolutely. And of course, we say American. There's James Honeyman Scott as well, who was, who was in the you know yeah. in the seventies was also. Well, James, I remember you said before, Johnny, that actually James was one of the few kind of sort of people you had to look up to out of all that, right? Well, this is the Pretenders guitar yeah. player, right? Yeah. I only ever bothered to work out maybe two or three entire albums because I'm essentially a writer. I don't have the discipline or I get really bored just playing someone else's stuff. But the Pretenders album was one of them, which is how it was quite easy for me to join the band later on in 87. And then uh, Raw Power, James Williamson, I learned that from start to finish. Very few albums. I, I was very, very into the only ones, late 70s. I was kind of like their, their number one fan in a way. I used to follow them out everywhere. I mean, Another Girl, Another Planet is still one of the, the greatest yeah. pop songs ever yeah. written. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's our generation's There She Goes, really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So let's go back then. Shall we, we need to, the era before you met Guy Pratt, is this a life that you there's even no recognise, Johnny? There's, there's no point. <laughs> we could talk about briefly about the Berlin Club when I first met you, I think, in Manchester. You were DJing, and this is 1981. You know what? It's amazing. Yeah, that's right. So I hadn't made a record yet. But I was DJing uh, in this club and it was a very exclusive. The night had only been going a couple of weeks. Gary and all, well, in fact, all of your band and a few of your friends and stuff, I think you'd have been, you were doing a telly thing in Manchester or something. Yeah, I could. And we'd had this club and it was very cool. It was like hairdressers and some musicians, really. <laughs> Famous people, people in waiting. And, um, and my favorite crowd. <laughs> we had a, a Spano Valley, we're coming down and you know, I remember being a little bit like, they don't want to be coming down here. And, uh, <laughs> and then, in they came and really raising the bar, raising the tone of the place, if you, if you don't mind. <laughs> you were the DJ, weren't you? I was the DJ, yeah. We were playing like, uh, it was... A, yeah, I was a, what would you be spinning? What would you be spinning there? I guess it became known as Rare Groove. We were playing like, it was the Mancunian sort of uh, mirror of like what was going on with the sweat boxes and all of that. So... There's a lot of like John Lee Hooker. I remember we played like Lee Dorsey, stuff like working in a coal mine, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sam and Dave, loads of, a lot of stack stuff. You know, Hold On, I'm Coming, that kind of stuff. Betty Everett. So there's a lot of black early R&B thrown in and then with some disco stuff thrown in. And then- Well, you know, your club was, the club was called Berlin. I mean, we were all sort of fascinated yeah. with that. You know, Bowie had gone to Berlin, hadn't he? And, and Iggy had, and we were all fascinated by that. Yeah. And is this, is this when you had the thing with the clothes, your mate at the clothes shop, Johnny, when you were kind of doing your runs to, you were stocking up from Johnson? Yeah. I was working in this clothes shop and dressed up. In my book, uh, there's a chapter called uh, Stagewear for the Street, which was a logo that was Johnson's on the King's Road. That was one of their little phrases. Everyone has got, it's a very subjective thing, isn't it? Thinking about when you're 17, 18, everyone thinks that their period was, was the best. But um, I look back on that time and it was a really fertile, very interesting time because there'd been the explosion of punk and it was so liberating, but then it was like, now what? So it was really was like year zero, but it wasn't a vacuum. It was left up to, we really were looking at the next decade. Our generation, we were 
we sound like three old blokes playing dominoes now, don't we? Our generation, you know, in the 70s, there was the punk explosion, but we also had the chance for all of that eclectic mix of different music, which must have fed into all of us. Once punk had happened, we all pretended we never, ever liked anything to do with prog music. But, you know, there was all of that going on, pop, prog, Bowie, glam and disco. And all of that somehow seeped into all our work, didn't it, in the 80s? Yeah, there were innovative modern musicians who are discovering Sparks. I know it was a few years ago, but Franz Ferdinand did an album with Sparks and the last Arctic Monkeys album in a weird way reminds me of the Dion album that came out, the Phil Spector one in the 70s. My point yeah. being that, yeah, you know, we can be nostalgic and it is subjective, but I hear echoes of those early glam singles, which is where I came into this really. That's how I learned to play the guitar. Mick Ronson? Yeah. All the Young Dudes was a big one for me. That's how I, I got my style together, really, from learning records. I wanted to play the whole thing. But everyone had their guitar player. So one mate was into Richard Blackmore. I had a mate who was very, very into Ronson and into Kossoff and all of this. They were listening for the guitar part. But what happened was I was so into pop music, being a little younger, like a teeny bopper, that if the track started with the organ, I was like, oh, what are the chords? I wasn't waiting for the guitar part i was wanting to play the whole record yeah. that really developed my style really i've got this one-man band kind of thing I, I just want to say that what you just expressed then johnny sums up for me one of your greatest artistic achievements which is the backing track for how soon is now you know i never realized until just recently that there's no keyboard on that at all it's all only you you know from that chugging tremolo which you can talk about in a second because because i love the story about how you made that and the slide guitar and even that marimba sound which i i thought oh that's probably a dx7 you know but it was you that's how i yeah. <laughs> i learned this in 2011 when i started to do my solo stuff that it's helpful to give yourself a narrow very defined sense of parameters i think so the Smiths, we were very provincial. We were very into being in Manchester. There was a vibe in there, mostly coming from Tony Wilson, bless him. As annoying as he was, I say annoying in a very affectionate turn, you know. He was fabulously but, rude to me, I must say, you know. But his whole thing was like, you know, we're not London, we're not London, we're not London. And it was helpful, you know. So we had this very provincial bunker mentality, which is helpful. And that we had that later on when we made a couple of other albums. But um, musically as well, we had this thing of, we're not going to have synths on the record. Now, later, of course, when I discovered the emulator, we conveniently forgot about that. But <laughs> being forced to do atmospheric noises on the guitar was, that's my point. Yeah. It was really helpful. And I remembered that when I came to doing the solo stuff, because nowadays, particularly, you know, your option fatigue is a real a real thing for musicians yeah. in the studio. Yeah, overchoice. Yeah, without sounding like a snob about it, what I actually find is it's a bit of a crass analogy or comparison, but it's a little bit like a painter having a palette with any color under the sun and just putting it on the canvas. Yeah, you get my point. I think having a narrow set of parameters is very helpful, and that really helped me out in the Smiths. I was forced to, if I wanted to hear some noises or whatever, I was forced to do it on the guitar, and then I quite quickly realized that that was a bit of a good politic, great. We always start with the guitar, no matter what. Except maybe one track started with drums, but yeah. So that oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing to know. I've to go back and check that. You have your manifesto. And as yeah. I've got older, it might sound incredibly obvious, but with my own band until, you know, until I start changing, there are things now where, <laughs> it does sound obvious, 
But if I can do it on a guitar, I feel duty bound to do it on a guitar. Mm-mm-mm. We're a guitar band. There's loads of other kinds of bands. I also yeah. want to know what Tony Wilson said to you, Guy. Oh, so it, it was a, actually it was at Bernard's wedding a few years ago, and I was sat next to him, and it was he wasn't very well. It was towards the end. I was sat next to him at the you know at the dinner, and he was like, "Wow, Tony Wilson." Hi, Tony. Said, oh, what do you do? <laughs> I said, I'm a musician. I hate musicians. <laughs> and do you know, Johnny, what's really weird? If, if you look up musician in Wikipedia, there's a picture of Guy Pratt. Did you know that? No. He is the, he is the world's example of a musician. You know how people say, if you look up Horrible Bastard in the dictionary, there's a picture of him, you know. But if you look up <laughs> musician on Wikipedia... It's true. It's because Wikipedia is done by nerds, right? And all nerds are Pink Floyd fans. So there's any excuse to put anything, no matter how tenuously related to Pink Floyd. There are all sorts of really mundane things, like there's a thing on guttering, and there'll be a picture of Rick Wright's gutter. Because, you know, my mind turns to Jimi Hendrix, you know? (laughs) Guys like who? Miles Davis. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. John Coltrane. This is my point yeah. entirely. It has nothing to do with me anyway. Whoever goes to that page, what does he do? He's a musician. What's that? I don't know. Let's look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Johnny, if you don't mind, I'm sure you had loads of bands when you were before you met yeah. Morrissey. But the big one for everyone is that meeting between you and him and, and how it was. You know, I just want to just, just have a listen to that story. Well, I've been hustling around for years i've joined a band of uh uh, you say for years i mean how old are you at this point i left school at 15 to be in a band because my my, the band i was in at the time my mates band actually we were pretty uh (coughs) competent like a kind of power pop band and we went and did a demo at nick lowe's house home studio and um which was amazing that's right yeah so then we had him on the show he was amazing he was amazing So, of course, Andy Rourke, who's my mate and myself, we went back to our school then and just kind of just said to everybody, like, you know, the next week, we were just like, hey, guess what? We're leaving, suckers. Yeah, yeah, see ya. Well, you will if you're watching Top of the Pops in a few weeks. We've all done that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I didn't even notice that we'd left. But uh, anyway, so And then I'd had, I've been in a few different bands and I was in one band, a band of adults. I kind of got headhunted with this band of real reprobates, but they'd made a record. They were called Sister Ray and they were on this compilation album. They sounded a bit like Stooges mixed with Hawkwind. That's really, and that's right, right. Hey. Anyway, I'd been in a few bands like that and uh, I got to this point where I, I kind of knew what band I really, in my dreams, the kind of band I really wanted. And um, I was working in this clothes shop and everybody used to come in and out of this clothes shop and people from Factory Records. So I knew all the bands there, you know, I'm 17, maybe 18. And um, I got very into the girl groups. I got into the girl groups because I was into the dolls. And like all of us, you know, I know you would have done in a big way, like everyone did with Bowie. Our heroes inform our taste. I got educated through the music papers and turning me on to a lot of things. That's how I found out about William Burroughs and we all did through Bowie and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, um, I was very into the New York scene. I love Patti Smith and I love the dolls. All those people used to do covers of Be My Baby, Ronettes and the Crystals and the Shangri-Las. So those songs I liked, I liked them more than modern music. 
I liked old records more. I just thought they were more interesting and weirder. They didn't sound. It was a massive, massive fifties revival then, wasn't there? I mean, it was the American graffiti and obviously, you know, Greece and whatever, but it yeah. was, a, it was a popular thing, you know, the revival yeah. of 50, a kitsch in a kitsch way. Also because punk styling was very fifties, wasn't it? With every, yeah, the quiff. Yeah. It didn't sound kitsch to me. I mean, particularly the mid early sixties stuff from the Brill building, like the crystals and, particularly the Shangri-Las, I love that. So I was very into that. And I started, I lived in this attic space with this family. I'd moved out my mum and dad's, I'd got this job in a clothes shop and I was living in a, a, this little attic space. I had my own little, I treated it like a, a sort of laboratory in a way. I had a little three track, weirdly cassette recorded. And my, I had this idea, cause I love the girl groups of, well, everyone in around the factory scene was being, was very informed by electro and hip hop and New York, because there was a lot of that. The bands were going over ACR, New Order. There was a sort of transatlantic thing happening. All my mates were, were being funky, so I knew all of that. And it was interested in it, but I thought, well, I'm onto something with this, these kind of chord changes. And then it, then it expanded then to Motown, which I'd always loved. So I started playing these kind of chord changes and writing these songs in my bedroom. And I thought, well, you also want to be modern. So I didn't want to, it wasn't like I wanted to form a band that dressed that way. It wasn't like I wanted to be the commitments, but I had this weird kind of lateral thinking where I thought if we had the back line of Patti Smith and I, I learned how to arrange these songs, these short, weird songs, it would be more interesting than, than what my, my pals were doing because they were very into James Brown, certain ratio, we're doing a lot of that. There was a bit of a jazz thing going on. And I just thought, well, I'm a rock musician. I wanted to make a new kind of rock band. And in an ideal world, it would be a four piece and I'd have a sort of my own kind of Mick Jagger because I was obsessed with the Rolling Stones, which mm. is why the first Smith single, 45 is Navy Blue. It looks like a Decca record. That was where I was at. And I've been trying out different frontmen. Before that, I was singing and all of that. I didn't really want to continue doing that. So I was trying out different frontmen in this rehearsal room with Andy Rourke. Anyway, I took up a friendship with a guy who ran a clothes shop, pop music, particularly UK pop music, has a lot of connections with older, usually men, who were uh, either at a record shop or a clothes shop. Yeah. Brian Epstein. Malcolm McLaren. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. now, T. Fontaine's there, mate, became their manager at a bar. A, that's a whole other thing. So it was that similar dynamic. I met this older guy who was an amazing bloke, Joe Moss. He became a manager for years and years. He, he only stopped being my manager a few years ago, he died. And anyway, Joe, if you remember McNulty, I think his name is, Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Oh, Joe looked mm -hmm. exactly like that. So he had a proper 50s flying jacket. I mean, he looked ancient to me. He was probably 35. Yeah. And he had this shop next door. He and I started knocking around together. He gave me a job in his shop. We used to smoke pot every afternoon. And then I'd even go to his house at the weekends. And there was a South Bank show on about Lieber and Stoller, who I love, and um, the songwriting duo. And in the South Bank show, one of them, can't remember which, one of them needed someone to write words. And he just said, well, I found out this kid in school who wrote words and I went and knocked on his door. So I was like, ah. now I'd already knew of Stephen Morrissey because some of my mates had been in a band with him years before. And he seemed to have dropped off the radar but he was someone who I knew was in my town. He was 
regarded himself as a, a frontman, a singer, even though, as I say, he'd gone quiet for a few years. But more importantly, I knew that he was into the girl groups because he was a Dolls fan. That was the only other person on the planet. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Would understand what I was going for. And he was a singer and I needed a singer. And that all turned out to be true. He was the only other person who knew about the crystals and the angels and the cookies and all of that. So the next day I did a bit of phoning around my old neighborhood, but the older guys, because Morris was four four or five years older than me. And one guy gave me a number of another guy and I went and knocked on the door. Anyway, I got his address from someone who used to know him and I jumped on the bus with a friend of mine and we, I went and went up the path and knocked on his door. His sister came at the door and we said, he's Stephen in. And then he appeared at the door and uh, I just just went <laughs> a mile a minute. I formed this band. So we went up the stairs. My mate then just became completely mute. And I think he was like, this is history in the making. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I probably told him that on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went upstairs in his room, you know, a very tidy young man's bedroom. And uh, they said to me, do you want to put a record on? I went over and I looked through his records. He had some 45s, some Sandy Shaw stuff, which was interesting to me. I was a big, big Dusty Springfield fan. And then um, I just found this Marvelettes record called Paperboy, 
And I went to put it on and he said, good choice. And I flipped over the, the B side, which was called You're the One. And I just put the B side on. Mate. <laughs> oh my God. That's a great story. He got then you he, then. He knew you're the one. And me and him just went, let's be brilliant. Let's wow. be amazing. Wow. And then, because honestly, that code stuff, when you're young, you'll know. We've all done yeah, it. Yeah, of course. But those, the nuance when you like a certain designer or when you, you dress a certain, it goes on to this day. It really is very meaningful yeah, yeah, yeah. that we like the same things. I got goosebumps when you told me that story. I mean, that's down there with, with Paul and John meeting at the Quarryman yeah. gig, I think, you know, but even the title of the song being You're the One, I mean, it just. Oh yeah, yeah. This yeah. is, I mean, it's a romance, isn't it? When guys meet like that and and they fall in love with each other, really, over over music, it's a romance. Yeah. And what you make, the love making, is the music, isn't it? Oh, Gary, just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reel it in, mate. Reel it in. I know, I know. I got carried away. <laughs> I never made love with Tony Hadley. I tell you, that's for sure. <laughs> no, it's an amazing thing. It's a beautiful. Uh, connection but you know there's a fair amount of so there's a massive amount of idealism in it but also there's a massive amount of desperation in it as I you know got older it became very clear to me how desperate I was just to make a record and get out of the suburbs and yeah. have these dreams and it wasn't like my life was horrible but the idea of not attaining these dreams and at that point it wasn't really wasn't playing in front of 50,000 people or any of that business it was really, I really desperately wanted to make a seven-inch 45. Yeah, yeah. Right. Get on top of the pops. Or... What was the first song you wrote together? We wrote two in one afternoon. first song was called The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which was oh, yeah, yeah. very Patti Smith inspired. And the second one, it's on the same day, it's our first songwriting session, was Suffer Little Children about the Moors murders, which is a very, very heavy song. Yeah. Right? And is that the one, Johnny, when you were recording the demo, you held your cassette player out the window to record the kids in the playground outside? I mean, it was weird. I didn't even really kind of think twice about it. It was, we'd done this song, the window was open and I just held a microphone to my cassette out the window and I had a musical box that I'd never ever bothered to mess once, I think, yeah. you know, I used to put my pot in it maybe, you know. And I, <laughs> I opened this musical box and wound it up and I held that out the window because there was kids, it was about three in the afternoon, little kids playing in the playground outside. There was a kid's school nearby. So you've got this musical box and these kids playing that we put on the track, which is very yeah, disconcerting. Yeah. And actually has a strange beauty to it. So yeah, you know, that whole meeting, what happened, you know, seriously, the weird thing, this is all in my book, but so apologies. For Available people. now. It's like three quid now. So but, <laughs> uh, no, just if I'm repeating myself, but the amazing thing about that, okay, which I will tell you, because it's kind of unbelievable, is at that meeting, that first time we got together, in my enthusiasm about this new partnership, I said, we didn't have a name for the band yet. I said, whatever we're called, the first album should be eponymous. It's, we should be called that. In our early photographs, we should be hugging all the time. We should be hanging out on each other. The first single should have a navy blue label like Decca. We should be called Morrissey and Ma in songwriting. <laughs> We'd only just written our first song. Wow. <laughs> Literally five minutes before. We should do a song with Sandy Shaw. Now, ordinarily, you know what happens with bands forming more often than not, you get together in the rehearsal room and you, people drink beer and a year and a half later, someone leaves. It doesn't happen. But that's a very specific list. Do you know what I think um, 
that tells me is, you know, you are an amazing guitar player. But if you go on the internet now, you can see hundreds of kids who are shredding. And for a second, you think, oh, we should all give up playing guitar. This generation have just nailed it. But what, what it takes to be that great guitar player and the iconic guitar player that you are is all the other stuff as well. So not just being a great player, but having the vision visually and philosophically and everywhere you're going. You knew all of that. You wanted to be, in the end, a rock star, which you became, because you saw it in a, in a much bigger artistic framework. Well, the culture, the thing that... So, for example, with me and Morrissey, as everyone now knows, we are very different people. You without, think? Without a doubt. <laughs> we are very, very different. But the thing that we very much have in common, I mean, amazingly alike, was what you're talking about, Gary, is this absolute fanaticism, call it romance and idealism, for the ephemera, the culture, what it means, mm. what Bowie meant to his audience via the press. The whole bit, everything about it, all the detail. I'd been observing that from being eight or nine or ten. Like, there are many of us, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. All the little details, you know, labels, B-sides, picture sleeves, where people were playing gigs, the stuff people wore. And luckily, you know, I almost was cavalier about playing. I, I was so into all of that. And then I'd go, oh, right, let's demo three songs. And we just throw three songs down. And then a few days later, Morrissey would have the lyrics. And eventually when we got the other guys, we'd go in and knock these songs down. We were almost... I wouldn't say casual about that, never casual, but as you've said, yeah, it's the whole thing, the whole picture. Yeah, so we're now in an age where, you know, you scroll through social media and you do see these absolutely amazing musicians and I'm pleased for them. So many young musicians and, you know, you never used to see that many girls. You see these amazing girls. Absolutely. All the hot players I've seen of late, and these are the people working, seem to be girls and it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Amazing players. If that is your bag, then good on you. It's fine. But I, I wanted to play songs and I wanted to make songs. Yeah. yeah. And I'd learned the devices. So I was into playing the guitar. I was obsessed with the guitar, as I still am. But because I was obsessed with 45s in 71, 72, 73, 74, and was a card-carrying teeny bopper. So sitting on in my room just shredding, is, I've never been interested in that. Sorry, interesting thing. Johnny, because I remember it's one of the first things that struck me when I first heard you play. And Gary said the same thing to me this morning, texted the same thing to me, because you had all your finger picks and everything. And that lovely sort of arpeggiated style. I remember saying to you, this was like the first day at Air Studios with Brian, where I said, wow, you must listen to a lot of High Life. There was so much African music in it. And then Gary said the same thing. He's really got an African thing. And you said to me, I don't know what you're talking about. Never really listened to it. So it's fascinating how one's influences aren't always one's influences. Well, it's that thing, that beautiful thing, isn't it? Of putting two and two together and making five. Where, where you think something is done a certain way and you get it wrong. Yeah. You end up doing your own version of it. Amazing. Actually, you know, you know what? It's a good point for me to, to say about, I mean, one of the songs, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, that you have a very high life vibe going on in that, yeah. I think. And, and the real juxtaposition between you and Morrissey, that black and white, that which has been in all of the great, great double act writers forever, you know, whether it's Mick or Keith or, you know, yeah. John and Paul, you know, you play this joyous backing track, you give them to Morrissey and he sees misery, but that coming together is incredible. That fighting against each other on the track. I mean, you did you, was that obvious right from the beginning? No, 
No, it really wasn't. You only find out about yourself when people start talking about you in reviews. So, for example, I didn't know about High Life until people started saying. I mean, also, I didn't really know about the birds. I started checking the birds out because they kept cropping up. I kept being compared to them. And the High Life thing, no, we weren't that aware of it. We were just You're just kind of doing your best, really. Our very early stuff, things like accept yourself, these things take time. I was trying to play Motown piano parts. I was, yeah. I was it feels, okay, I'm doing these things. I was aware of that. Other than that, it was stuff I'd picked up in my bedroom in the 70s. A lot of it was Nile Rodgers. But when I say Nile Rodgers to people, everyone always understandably assumes it's the right hand going, jinka, jinka, jinka. Well, what I loved about Nile was his, it was what he was doing with the, the, what he's doing on the left hand. So the beautiful was so symphonic. And I was copying that, really. So for me, my favourite Smith's track was always, from when we did it, it was on the last album, it was um, Last Night I Dreamt Somebody Loved Me. And that, why, one of the things about that is because you're right, there is this idea where this charming man or there's quite a lot of songs that the music is very upbeat. But actually, when I was feeling pretty melancholy, which is a side to me, you know, and very dramatic, it's a dramatic thing, I really go for it. And um, when the Smith's music was sad, like Last Night I Dreamt, which is very dramatic, Meat is Murder. But we have those moments that were also, I would flip it, would be the reverse. So a classic example is um, that people often bring up is uh, Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others, which is a really very, very pretty and evocative piece of music. But it's, the, the lyrics are pure carry-on camping. <laughs> Why? How did it feel when it started to go wrong for you? This Kind of heartbreaking and um, fairly desperate, I think. The most important thing in my life, besides my then-girlfriend, also the most important thing in her life, mine and Angie's life, that we lived for, literally, was, was the band. And I sensed the friendship had broken down and in a way been corrupted yeah. one way or another by all kinds of things. And that was very, very heartbreaking. The guy was around. You, you remember Guy? Yeah, no, I, I remember it all very well. We're, we were looking at starting a band at that time. Yeah, it wasn't a matter of um, this. A good career move would be to split. It was a yeah. disaster. It was a disaster. What's interesting, Johnny, is so obviously I've read your book and um, I have read Mozzers because, you know, you got to. Yeah. And, but I made a point of I AB'd it, right? I read your description of the breakup of the Smiths and his at the same time. I kept going backwards and forwards and it's just two completely different things it's like it's none of the same characters it's not the same band nothing yeah. it's extraordinary yours is the one that rings true yeah so. i'm kind of envious of uh, johnny though because he did the whole court thing with his band before us I mean, he started that trend <laughs> <laughs> but no let me just go back to you breaking up who tried to keep the marriage together as it were was it were you fighting to keep it together i think yeah well i would say i was yeah but it ended up you know three against one well, Andy was probably in the middle, to be fair, but I felt very kind of ousted in my own band. And I, and I was just presented with one choice, which everyone knows, and it was just yeah. unacceptable. I've said it so many times, but I don't know anyone who thinks that it is a good idea for one of the biggest guitar bands in the world to be managed by their 23-year-old guitar player. That was what was put to me. And yeah. it was put to me, no, you're not going on holiday. You've got to go in the studio to do these B-sides for a record that isn't coming out. This is my bitch. And also, you know, we've got to fire another manager and we've got to go back to you running the band. And 
But that's what I remember, Johnny, because I remember you were literally booking vans. Yeah. And, yeah. Look, philosophically, I think in all, all walks of life, in everything, I think when things come to an end, I think events have a way of making, conspiring to make things happen. As a human, I, you know, I think now that when relationships or jobs come to an end, we hang in there as humans because we don't want to face the breakup and things turn to shit. I see with all walks of life and that's what happened. So I don't feel any bitterness now. I was for, I did for a long time, but certainly not now. And I think it was a thank fuck. I suppose the beautiful thing about your legacy here is it's a bit like you know James Dean dying in that car crash so young or Marilyn Monroe died. I mean, they will never age. You know, the Smiths never went on and suddenly yeah. weren't relevant. What you created was yeah. an incredible moment and then it all finished. It also freed you up to do lots and lots of other stuff. I'm sure there's a part of your mind that thinks, oh, what kind of album would we have gone on to make? But you've gone on to have this unbelievable career with so many different people. No, I mean, none of which you regret, obviously. I think both me and Morrissey were both always destined to do our own thing. We just happened to kind of hit the jackpot with a band the first time around, our first band. Seriously, I know bands that have been together for 30, 40 years. Peter Book, the Edge, Keith Richards. I never fancied that. I genuinely, mm. honestly, I never mm. fancied being in the same band for four years. Anyone, you ask anyone who knew me back then, even in the Smiths days, I wasn't that kind of character. I wanted to make loads of records with lots of different people. When I first met you, Johnny, you were literally, you just trying to go on all the rides. You were bouncing around town. It was like you were in with Brian. Then you dragged me off to play with Kirsty McCall. Then you were all night in the studio with Ronnie Wood. It's like you just wanted it all. You know, it was still like that. You know, I mean, like, yeah. so I've just been very, very lucky. I think I've, I've had the, the best gig any guitar player's ever had. I mean, it's amazing. I think I've had to pay for it sometimes. You know, I mean, I was, wasn't easy when for a few years after the Smiths, I'm not kind of getting the violins out, but you know, the British press didn't make it too easy for me, but that's all right. You know, toughened you up. But uh, I always wanted to play on a lot of different records. I just was my first band out was a band that people still love. It's, it's fantastic, but would I change it? Absolutely not. And where did you, where did you guys meet? Brian was doing, there was the, the B-side of Big Mouth Strikes Again was a thing called Money Changes Everything, and it was an instrumental. And Brian Ferry had the very clever idea of recording it and then writing a song on top of it. And we spent days and days and days working on this and just couldn't get it, just couldn't get it to sound like it. And then Brian said, well, why don't we get the guy who wrote it? Why don't we get Johnny Marr in? And I was like, mm, all right, mm. And so Johnny came down and I, I remember Johnny coming into the studio and he was incredibly friendly to me because you'd heard about me from Stephen Street, yeah. your producer, because I'd worked with him with Stephen Tintin Duffy. And it's one of those things I'll never, ever forget. You sort of plugged in and um, I was probably just reading The Guardian. And, and the well, second Johnny started playing, that was it. And then it was just off. It was, it was just brilliant. We were off just making music everywhere. You know what it's like when you meet Guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly you and i played on stage with each other as well johnny at the red yeah. wedge in manchester you in did. 1985 I, I and i remember we were and i love paul weller but i love paul but there was me you and i think billy bragg at the back of the stage we were doing move on up and i remember paul coming back and go turn it down <laughs> it was just so much noise coming out of our guitar amps how cool is that <laughs> so yeah that's right go we uh i think it was yeah maybe 85 something like that and and I look back on it now and I think, wow, Paul Weller had a lot on his uh, plate there. 
Yeah. He was holding the thing together. He handled it pretty well, really, frankly. But it was interesting because I went down there. I was so young. And um, I have to say, there wasn't a great vibe there. I just I always remember thinking, wow, I thought there'd be a bit more unity. Obviously, Billy Bragg was doing his best to... Uh, Billy was always very welcoming and friendly. But I'd, I'd been invited there. And I did a couple of shows. And I went now. I thought, God, there's a lot of people kind of up their own asses here. And you came along and it was someone... I could relate to we me and you were talking about telecasters and we we got chatting and it was it was nice to have someone who was friendly and who was cool frankly yeah because there was a lot of that 80s music competition wasn't there that was still carrying on between the bands supposed to be very right on but you were kind of really preying about and you know it could be for your credit you'd actually had a load of big hits and you came on was really down to earth and just plugged in and I think it was only me and you who didn't have like a lot of people preening around and weren't actually <laughs> entitled. So I thought I was, I always thought I was dead cool. Friend. Thank you, Johnny. Um, yeah, really I mean, where do we go? There's so much of your stuff and, and I, you know, I'm conscious of time as yeah. well, you know, I mean, from Modest Mouse, I mean, that stuff that you do with them is incredible. And um, we've already spoken about the pretenders electronic. I mean, obviously there's in a, in a way that was your Hacienda period, wasn't it? That was your yeah. mad Chester period. Yeah. Can I just say, having done, because one of the happiest little jaunts of my life was this time, when was it? It was about 98, was uh, when Electronic got together and we nearly did a tour. We, did, we went around Europe doing TV shows and it was one of the most fun times I've ever had. And there was a great thing, you and Bernard always blaming each other for the reason it didn't happen. It was and me. A, was it? <laughs> okay. I can fess up now. Oh, good, finally. Uh, do you know, it's weird. My career's almost like, you know, it's weird because I didn't really like playing shows until probably 2001. I hate it all. Right, right. like it. Wow. I was obsessed with making records. The Smiths tours weren't, the shows were nice, but I hated the touring. I didn't like the lifestyle. I didn't like any of it. So with electronic, it really it was down to me why we didn't play live. I look back on, on that and that's my fault really. But uh, sorry, guy. yeah, I remember that was fun. That, that last album, the, the, a lot of people were like, I'm a really big electronic fan. Please make a third album. I was like, we did make the third album. <laughs> is it because you're a family man, Johnny? You don't like going on the road. Is that what it was at that no, time? No, Gary, it, was, it was that I, uh, I was obsessed with making records every day. So luckily, because I've, you know, I've got a family, it just worked out great that when my kids were little, I had a studio. So my house was basically a residential studio. My family yeah. lived in a studio. <laughs> so... You know, the charlatans would come. Oh, Johnny's got a two-inch machine and a good room. So the cribs would come, the charlatans. Beth Orton would come. Like Ian McCulloch would come, like Pet Shop Boys. To my house, so my kids were very little then. Wow. But when I joined Modest Mouse in 2005, they were like a real, real touring band. Amazingly, I learned that. I loved it. It kind of right. coincided with me, like, you know, stopping drinking and drugging and turning into Forrest Gump. You know, I, I would run 18 miles before a gig. I have a love-hate relationship with touring because we all love being on stage. That is one of the greatest things you can do. And playing with a band is also incredible. It's just the traveling, isn't it? It's just the being away from home. It's just all of that stuff in between. But there's well, different touring, like you said, because, you know, when Gary and I tour together now with, with the sources, basically sober touring is a completely different animal and actually way more rewarding. I think if you're an intense person in any way and you're a creative person, my abstinence or whatever it's, well, it isn't really about abstinence i quit drinking and drugging particular you know i mean full disclosure i've got nothing against psychedelics once every you know a couple of times a year or whatever i think it's pretty useful but boozing and all of that you know it isn't like some 
redemptive my drinks and drugs hell or nor is it a, a, about abstinence again something i always say but if i thought boozing and drugging would make me write better songs i'd be doing it yeah, I actually, yeah. it doesn't and uh i also didn't want to be a cliche i, I didn't want to be that guy i didn't want to be that yeah. guy who turns up in your mate's dressing room after the gig and is like, uh, yeah. I don't, i'm not into being messy you know it, it just worked out it worked out great and um and I got more idealistic. I got more intense. I started writing lyrics I really liked. I got my band together. And the solo thing is great. It's the happiest time of my life, really, the solo years. I can go on tour with a bus, employ people I really like. The shows are intense. I, I've got a great relationship with my audience. I'm making records. I mean, Jesus. What more do you want? I'll Not tell you down. what more you want and what you get is because come on, John, we got to, Hans Zimmer. Yeah, right. We need to talk about that what? too. What? I mean, that's how does amazing. that work? How does that relationship work doing film music? Hans is like family in my family, you know, like uh, Hans is that kind of person. You're all in, really. He's got such a network of, you know, you meet other people through Hans. Did he just call you up one day and say, come and play on my film? This is exactly what happened. So Angie and I, my wife, one night, we, we decided to go and see that film, Kick-Ass, and it's brilliant. And when the trailers were on, Angie said to me, oh, have you heard about a new Christopher Nolan movie? It looks really amazing. There might be a trailer for it. So this trailer then came on. She said, oh, here it is. And it was for the, the movie Inception. And I'm watching this Leonardo DiCaprio, and I'm like, wow, that looks amazing. That's kind of a trippy thing. We watched Kick-Ass, went home. Within five minutes of being home, the phone rang. Hans Zimmer, I've never spoken to Hans in my life and got my number from someone. And um, he just phoned me up and said, oh, we're doing this movie and um, we've been doing this thing that sounds very much like you. And we've decided, much, kind of like Guy's uh, experience on the, with the Brian thing, we, it just doesn't sound right. We need the real guy. And he's very charming, Hans. Uh, oh, you charmer. What's the movie? And he said Inception. And I, I, I was like, well, I don't know, how does this work? Am I dreaming this? I've just seen the, the trailer. I didn't realize that the trailers go up so far in advance and it's not the actual music. So he, he invited me, said, you know, come over and do it. So that was the first thing we did. And that was an amazing experience. And the movie was so successful. What I'd heard was that, uh, that Christopher Nolan is a huge Smiths fan. And when he was editing Inception, he was using Smiths tracks to cut Templates, to. yeah, as it were, temp tracks. As templates, yeah, yeah. pen dubs. Yeah. And, um, and, and so when Hans wrote, he, he was trying to recreate a Smiths thing. Ah, oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah. The, the thing that's very satisfying about that, I must admit, was that um, up until then, guitars in big budget movies were, believe it or not, were a no-no. When you hear that, you go, oh, right. Because a thing had happened in the 80s with this kind of faux mountaintop blues yeah. rock. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rikuda slide. Remember? Yeah. Well, there was Paris, Texas. Yeah. And what happened was I, I discovered that... Um, Hands told me that, well, a lot of directors like anything but guitar, anything but guitar. And if you suggested guitar, it was a no-no because it, it meant that. So I loved Inception. I loved watching it. I loved being involved in that. And I did my thing. And I was allowed to just sound like me. Uh, and in fact, Hans was like, look, you're being too reverential to it. We want you to bring your thing to it. So that was beautiful. After that, then, it kind of set a sort of bit of a tone, a bit of a fashion in guitars coming back in in films and in TV adverts, all of a sudden there was all these kind of inception-like guitars and Hans Zimmer kind of orchestration. So 
was very proud of that. I'm proud of it not because of a personal achievement. I'm just proud to help bring the guitar back. Oh, you've played on other movies of his now. You do it all okay. the time. Don't you? you went on tour well, with you, him. You toured with him. And in fact, Niall has been, your son has been on tour with him, hasn't he? Yeah, well, it, Hans has decided to just get the younger upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I, the boy's working. But um, yeah, we, after that, I did Spider-Man 3, or I think it was Spider-Man 3. And then I did bits <laughs> on Rango. And then what else did we do? I did a Julianne Moore film with it, which was cool. And then I've recently uh, did the Bond film, which was, that was very cool. So you've, you're one of the few people who've seen it then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, very helpfully, I saw the end you're... first. Thanks, fellas. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I saw oh, you no. do that performance where you get to play the chord. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do uh, play that chord. It's Vic Flick, wasn't it? Played that original guitar part. It was, yeah. yeah they didn't play, the, yeah, yeah. So Down low. Fellas, honestly, I got to play the Bond theme with the orchestra. I got to play it for the oh. film. Now, most people will know this, but you'll definitely know this. It's one of the first things you ever learn because it's, it's dead easy. Yeah. It's so easy. But it's not when you actually come to do the real thing. But if you just don't get the tone right, if it, it's, there's so <laughs> much riding on it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. It would be yeah. terrific. It's the most iconic guitar part ever, isn't and it? It's so simple. The fact that it's so simple makes it more difficult. Because you've got so much time to think, <laughs> and all the options are like over to you. <laughs> Johnny, what have you been doing all through this lockdown period? Have you been working, writing records? Yeah, I'm making the new record up, which is solo album four. I say solo, I've got a band. I love my band; they're amazing. And then a few of my friends decided in lockdown, oh, I'll just dust off that solo album I've been working on for 15 years. Johnny, you're not doing anything. <laughs> Sorry, I'm on tour. No, you're not. I've seen you on Instagram. You're in your garden. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, was, I, was doing all of, I was doing all of that, but... I should have got you on mine. I, I ended up roping him in, but I, I did a record with, but all remote. Well, a lot of it was remote, apart from the summer when we can, when we can finished, make yeah. things. It's finished now. It's coming out uh, in a few months, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Great. So, so but uh, and I did this thing with this Australian band called Avalanches and MGMT. That I love oh, Avalanches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that came out recently and apparently is, is everywhere on the radio a lot. So that's pretty cool. So busy, man. Really loving it. Listen, mate, thank you so much for being on yeah. this with Good us. Steve, fellas. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I mean, I find musicians to be, I um, don't know whether you guys are like this, but very, you know, generous. I'm very proud to be a musician. You know, I, I, I love the, the brotherhood yeah. of, of it and sisterhood of it. You know, I love that yeah. musicians are generous with sharing their influences and, their enthusiasms. I found that over the years, you know, you, you meet someone and you go, have you heard, have you heard, have you heard? Yeah. Uh, and I don't think, I'm not sure whether actors are like that, but I know comedians are. Do you know what? I'm so touched by what you just said. I'm going to go and look at Wikipedia and see what a musician looks like. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be Miles Davis or John Coltrane. I'm or sure it will be. It has to be, right? Yeah. Something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or even you. God bless, mate. Bye. Lots of love. Bye. Bye bye. Yeah. I, oh, wow. Uh, that was, I really, I love that. That was great. People are going to love that. He's so brilliantly considered in what he says. He's, you yeah. know, he's like yeah. a real sort well, of academic. He sees the, the cerebral part of this business as well. This, the, yeah. The playful. No, he's such a brilliant person at talking about music and, and about his love of music. All that aside, Johnny is one of the finest people to walk God's earth, frankly. Really is. Oh. In every way. 
Yeah. I'm, am I one of little, one I'm of getting, I'm getting a little bit jealous. You know, a little bit envious, one, jealous. One of one thank of you. Gary. Thank you. thank you. I know I'm walking on the <laughs> other side of you, guy. <laughs> um, exactly. Thank you for listening to the Rock on Tours. It'd be really great if you could subscribe, as they say. I think that's what yeah, you say. Isn't and it? thank you so much for making it such a success, everyone. Really. Yeah, you know, it's been great. We're hovering around at number one for quite a lot this week, and we've been really yeah. thrilled by that. And all your comments as well on social media have been incredible and inspiring. Remember what Bambi's mother said, which is, if you haven't got anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Was it Bambi's mum or was it Thumper? I can't remember. Right. Anyway. On that note, it's goodbye <laughs> from me. And good night from her. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.